Gentlemen of the jury. <coughs> I can't flip to uh, Is that being taped now? See, ask him if it's being taped. I don't know. Ask him. Ask him. What? What is that? It is on, right? It's on. Okay, good. <coughs> okay? All right. Um, yeah. Someone brought their son to the uh, Slobodka Yeshiva. Slobodka Yeshiva was one of the uh, first Musar Yeshivas in, in recent history. It was in the early 1900s till it moved to uh, Israel in 1925. Anyway, they met the Mashgiach of the Slobodka Yeshiva, a gentleman by the name of the Altar of Slobodka. The Altar of Slobodka told the father when uh, the child was being brought to the yeshiva, he says, you know, I can't guarantee you that your son is going to become a lamdin when he leaves this yeshiva. He says, I can't even guarantee you that your son won't do averas after he leaves this yeshiva. He said, one thing I can guarantee, he says, he won't enjoy doing the averas after he leaves this yeshiva. He says, I'll kill that. That Yetzirah I'll kill. I don't know if I can make that statement here either anymore. But I would like to make a statement is, is that after you leave this yeshiva, you'll enjoy doing mitzvahs. He says, I don't, I don't know anymore if, if I'm going to make you or any of us are going to make you feel terrible about Averis you're going to do. But hopefully after you leave this yeshiva, you're going to love mitzvahs and Torah so much that you won't want to do it. Now it's after Hanukkah, gentlemen. And hopefully a little bit of the light from the menorah pushed away a bit of the choshech that the Jewish people have been in broiled in since Yavon. Yavon has brought choshech to the world. The Greeks have tried to take away our appreciation of Torah and what it means to be a Jew. And hopefully now, after Hanukkah, a little bit of that darkness has been removed. And therefore, we're all open now to make a fresh look and to see exactly where am I going in life. You know, there's a story that a woman was, was in shul and they were reading the parsha of Yosef. And she, and she listens in shul well and she hears that what's happening over here. Yosef, Yaakov's favorite son, is despised by his brothers. His brothers are jealous of him. And he goes to see his brothers following his father's orders to go check up on his brothers. His brothers do what? They throw him into a pit. 
And the woman, when she hears this, she can't control her crying. She's crying and crying and crying. Look at what her brothers are doing to him. How could they do that to their own brother? To throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. How could they do that to their own brother? The next year, the same woman comes to shul and she hears the same story. And there's no, there's no response. So her neighbor tells her, her neighbor says to her, he says, I don't understand something. He said, last year when you heard this story about Yosef and how Yosef was treated so terribly by his own brothers, you were crying and crying and crying. He said, now, now all of a sudden he says, there's no, no nothing, you're not crying? He says, she said, listen, if he's so stupid to go back to that pit again this year, I said, why should I cry for him? So why is it that we keep rereading it every year over and over again, gentlemen? Why do we have to keep hearing this story for? You know what you do with the New York Times the next day? You wrap up fish in it. That's all it's good for. So why is it that we have to keep hearing the stories over and over again? I think the idea, gentlemen, is, is that the people that we read about in Chumash, they're called our avos, they're our fathers. And one of the things that we realize in modern times now is that there's a concept called DNA. DNA represents the genes that are passed on from father to son, from father to son, all the way down. When we read the stories in Chumash, we have to realize who our Avos were and what do we have in our genes. What is being passed down to us through all the generations that when we need it, we can use it. And I think one of the things that we can learn from in last week's Parsha with Yosef, going back to Yosef, is Yosef makes a statement to his brother. Yosef tells his brothers after, he sees them again after 22 years, is that first Yosef makes a statement. He says, you know, I think you're spies. And as such, I'm going to keep nine of you in jail. And one of you I'm going to let go back to your, your homes and you'll bring back that. And that one person will bring back the brother that you claim you have. Yosef, after three days, says, I reassessed, I rethought what I think and I'm going to let nine of you go and keep one of you. Why? Because I fear Hashem. If a person can fear Hashem, he says, then I have to reassess what, my, what I want to do with my life. And if, I'm, if I have one agenda... But because I ask myself the most critical question that each one of us has to ask ourselves every time we make a decision, just what does God want from me? What would God say if I was doing this? And you'd be surprised the answers you'll come up with. Yosef taught us that. That if a person is honest with himself and he asks, what does God want me to do with my life? You'd be surprised how honest and how you might see things a little bit differently. Now, even with Yosef, it took Yosef years and years and years, as we find out in this week's Parsha. Yosef realizes, now, why did all these things transpire from when I was 17 years old and I was thrown into a pit and sold down to Mitzrayim and put in the, in the dungeon and being chased after by Potiphar's wife? Why did all this transpire to me? Because now I can realize 22 years later that I was sent to Egypt to save the entire Jewish people. It's because of all that took place there for him to save the Jewish people. We don't necessarily see what God has in store for us. It might take many, many years down the line. But one thing we do have to realize is 
the decisions we make now are going to affect generation upon generation upon generation. Lot. Lot. Avram's nephew went down to Mitzrayim with, with Avram Avinu. Was loyal to Avram Avinu. And therefore when he left, he also came out with the wealth of Egypt. And yet we find at some point that Lot said, I can't take it anymore. I have to leave. I cannot be together with Avram. And as Rashi points out, that when Lot went to Kedem, he went to the east. Rashi says, he left me Kadmonu Shalolam. By leaving Avram Avinu, by not being able to stay in the environment of a yeshiva, by not staying in that environment of Avram Avinu, of that yeshiva, he left Kadmonu Shalolam. He left HaKadosh Baruch himself and he went to stone. By making that one decision, by leaving Avram, he left Hashem. That's what Rashi is trying to teach us. That when you're in the company of a man of Avram Avinu, who represents a Kaddish Baruch, who is, who is the yeshiva of the world, and you leave that environment, if you leave that yeshiva, then you're making a statement. You're leaving Kadmonu Shalolam, and as a result, his generations have nothing to do with the Jewish people anymore. There's a gentleman in Mishnayos, a Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Gemara tells us in Sukkah, knew basically everything. Knew basically everything. And yet he was Hillel's smallest Talmud. The Gemara mentions in Sukkah, he says, who was Hillel's greatest Talmud? It was Jonas ben Uziel. Jonas ben Uziel, who wrote a parish on, on Navi. Jonas ben Uziel, who when a bird was flying over was burnt because the fire coming out of him, the Torah coming out of him was like Harsinai all over again. That was Hillel's greatest Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was Hillel's smallest Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai basically saved the entire Jewish people. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had five Talmidim, the mission in Pirkei tells us, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was judging each one of his Talmidim. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said that Rabbi Lozer ben Arach was his greatest Talmud. And he said all the other Talmidim in comparison to him are nothing. Are nothing. So we would expect that a person of such stature, of such magnitude, should be found all over Shas. You should find his name printed everywhere. This man is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's greatest Talmud. And you know how many times you find him? Once. A story about Rabbi ben Arach. Gemara and Shabbos tells us that after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is one of his requests from the Roman general was that he wished to have the city of Yavne put aside for the Chachamim. So when Rabbi Lozer ben Arach's Chaveirim came to him, he says, we're going to go down south we have to go down south now to start the yeshiva over again. So Rabbi Loza ben Arach and his wife, and this is why you have to learn, you have to be very careful who you choose for a wife. Rabbi Loza ben Arach and his wife made a decision that they lived in a city called Yumsis. The Yumsis had jacuzzis. The Yumsis had 70 degree weather all the time. It was a... It was a spa, a health spa, the Yumsis. And uh, Rebbe Lezabinach says, I can't go. I can't go. I cannot leave the Yumsis. 
is I'll, I'm a Talmud Chacham, I'll learn on my own. We find the Gemara in Shabbos continues and says, you know, when the Chaverim came back, when his, when his contemporaries came back, Rabbi Lezer ben didn't even know simple Hebrew. He couldn't even read a simple Pasuk in Chumash. He couldn't even read a Pasuk in Chumash. Because Rabbi Lezer ben felt that I don't have to be with the my Chaverim. I'll do it, keep it on my own. That one decision, you don't find his name once throughout the entire Shas. His career was completely shot. Completely shot. A famous story about our own Rabbi Schwab, his uncle, Rabbi Shimon Schwab. Rabbi Shimon Schwab was coming to America. And this is in 1930. And he met the Chavetz Chaim. He wanted a bracha from the Chavetz Chaim before he came to America. So uh, the Chavetz Chaim asked Rabbi Schwab, he said, he says, I'm a Kohen. Right? The Chavetz Chaim was a Kohen. And he says, you're not a Kohen. He says, why aren't you a Kohen? He says, well, of course. My father wasn't a Kohen. And your father was a Kohen. That's why you're a Kohen and I'm not. He said, why wasn't your father a Kohen? He says, well, because his father wasn't a Kohen. He says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. He says, you know why I'm a Kohen and why you're not a Kohen? He says, because 3,000 years ago, when Moshe Rabbeinu made a statement, Mila Hashem Eli, who's the one who's loyal to Hashem? My ancestors answered that call. My answers said, we are loyal to Hashem. And because my ancestors answered that call and they said they're loyal to Hashem, therefore I'm a Kohen today. Your ancestors did not answer that call. They were not loyal to Hashem and therefore they're not Kohanim to this very day. The Chavetz Chaim told Rabbi Shwab, he says, you're going to America. It's going to be very difficult. In the 1930s, it was not simple to be an Orthodox Jew in America. We take it for granted. The Kaddish Baruch is very, very generous to us. The Kaddish Baruch appreciates where we're coming from. To be an Orthodox Jew in the 1930s was not a simple thing at all. Even when I was a little boy, which a little bit before World War II, but anyway, even when I was a little boy um, in the 1960s, I remember, I remember you know, people coming home right, they had to work on Friday till 3.15, whatever, and rush home on the train. You couldn't take off on Fridays. You couldn't take you when if you wanted, you, you had to take hours off and you had to pay for it. And also, it was not simple at all to be an Orthodox Jew. God kosher didn't exist. There's no such thing. You know, Rabbi Wine says uh, it's very talks the times. He said, you know, he says there's a lot more shmura matzah eaten today, but there's a lot less matzah. Jews who are traditional Jews don't exist anymore. Those type of Jews aren't around. But it was difficult. And the Chavetz Chaim said, for you to be an Orthodox Jew, you're going to be tested. Constantly. You're going to have that question in front of you. Are you loyal to Hashem? And you have to understand that that decision of your loyalty will not only affect you, but it's going to affect every generation from now on. Pay attention to that and answer it well. Don't make the same mistake that your ancestor made 3,000 years ago when he refused to say he wasn't loyal to Hashem. Answer it correctly and you'll save your generations. In this week's parsha again, we see that um, when the brothers finally come back to Yaakov and they give the unbelievable news that Yosef's alive and for whom Moshe b'Mitzrayim, he's the king of Egypt. And what's Yaakov's response to that? 
He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. So the obvious question that we all ask is, what are they playing, an April Fool's trick on their father? They know exactly the relationship and how much Yaakov loved Yosef. They're going to come and, and pull, a, pull a trick on their father and say Yosef's alive when he's not? So what does it mean that Yaakov didn't believe? Listen to the statement. Yosef's alive and he's the king of Egypt. When we say alive, in Torah terms, we mean he's alive as a Jew. Yaakov couldn't believe it. Yaakov's, Yosef is alive as a Torah Jew and he's the king of Egypt in the, in, the, in the den of Egypt with all the prostitutes and with all the idolatry. You're telling me Yosef is still a loyal Jew? I can't believe that. That Yaakov couldn't believe until he was shown it. It's not simple. It is not simple to be, a Jew, to be loyal to your Torah values in a world that contradicts it. But the Gemara in Sukkah tells us an answer. Gives us a very important answer in life. The Gemara in Sukkah says that Mashiach is going to come. And he's right around the corner. He's going to come. And he's going to Shech the Sahara. And the Gemara says that they're going to be Tzadikim there. And they're going to be Rishoyim there to witness this. And both groups are going to cry. Both are going to cry. Both the tzaddikim and the rishonim are going to cry. The tzaddikim are going to cry because the Yetzirah is going to appear to them as a mountain that was unsurmountable. How is it possible for us to possibly withstand the temptations of this Yetzirah which was insurmountable? And the rishonim are going to cry too. It's going to appear like a little thread. It was such a simple thing. And how come we couldn't deal with it? So Rav Shachshlita says, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Yetzirah is going to appear as a mountain? He says, when the Yetzirah came to the Tzaddikim, every time the Yetzirah came, it was a big deal. It was something that was unbelievable. How could I possibly do it? The Yetzirah doesn't come and try to take a Torah away from a Jew. He wants you to do the smallest thing. Just, he wants, he's looking for a small opportunity, just a little to come in. He's like a thief. Comes to the door, the door is locked. So he goes around the back, looks in the back door, the back door is locked. Tries the windows, the windows are, lo- are locked. He's looking all over. He's looking for a small crack to come in. He's looking for a small opening for the smallest thing. Just miss this today. Just do this. A small thing. So the tzaddikim, the way they, the way pa- the way they pass the test is because every time the Yetzirah came to them with the smallest with the smallest idea. It was tremendous. How could we possibly do it? So if you look at it as a big deal, then you'll withstand it. The Roshoyim is because every time the Yetzirah came, it was a small thing, big deal. So I'm this minion today. I can do it tomorrow. So I won't put on tefillin today. There's always tomorrow. So I don't learn today. There's always tomorrow. There's always, it's not a big deal. So these not big deals add up, add up, and add up and until finally it ends up that you're a rush already. That's the difference. If every time you're being asked to do something, it becomes, it's a big deal, and I don't allow it, so then you keep it in bay. You keep him at bay. The difficulty that we find today is, I'm not from Detroit, and I can't really tell you. I don't know if anybody here is from Detroit. I'm not sure. But anyway, I'm quite sure if you go to the General Motors or the Ford car plants, You'll look at the parking lot over there and I think 70% of the cars will be Toyotas or Hyundais or whatever else you say. You're not going to find American-made cars anymore. What do we see, gentlemen? The concept of loyalty doesn't exist anymore. Just because I work for General Motors, just because I'm an American, why should I buy an American car? So I buy a Japanese car. So I buy a Korean car. So what? 
We live in a world where there's no such thing as loyalties anymore. If, I work, if, I, if, if I'm working for this company, so I'll leave it, I'll drop off. What's the difference? We don't feel that connection. And it's because we don't have small loyalties, therefore we can't build up to great loyalties. And that's the difference. We have to realize that. The Gemara tells us that um, the way to tell if an animal is a trefo or not, an animal that's a trefo you can't eat, is that an animal, an animal has to be able to live out the year. If an animal can live out the year, then it's a kosher animal. If it can't live out the year, then it's a trefo and you can't eat it. Why? Because we have to understand something. A person has to be able to live throughout all seasons. It's not always spring, it's not always summer. There's winter, and it's cold, and it's hard, and there's fall, and it's not simple in life. And if a Jew is going to be a healthy Jew, he has to be able to live throughout all seasons of his life. Sometimes Kaddish Baruch Hu is shining on him, and he's got everything going for him. Sometimes he has difficulties in life, and distresses in life, and things that he doesn't begin to understand. He doesn't know, why did this happen to me? I've been good so far, and why did God do this to me? Yosef had questions for 22 years. Why did God do this to me? Yosef maintained his loyalty. He kept it strong. And that's why he could understand it 22 years later. Now this is close to my heart, gentlemen, and you have to always remember this one. There's a gentleman by the name of Yogi Berra. Now Yogi Berra used to play for the Yankees when I was a young boy, and I'm from the Bronx. So Yogi Berra is close to my heart. Just remember this statement of his. It's not over till it's over. You don't give up. You don't give up. You'll, you have to maintain that loyalty. I would like to read to you a story from a, a very, very excellent book that I highly recommend. Some of you boys are avid readers. I don't think Stephen King or any of those people will get you too far in life, but... If it doesn't prove your vocabulary, I guess it'll help you read this book. But I highly recommend this book. It is in English. It's a language that we speak, I hope. Although Rav Futner used to say, he says, I have Talmudim who are illiterate in three languages. So, anyway, I hope the English isn't too hard. It's a book called Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. It's written by um, Yaffa Eliach. Her husband is the principal of Flatbush High School. Was the principal of Flatbush High School. Anyway, it's an absolutely unbelievable book. Uh, the story goes as such. About simple Jews. We're not talking about Yosef. We're not talking about Avram Avinu. We're not talking about big-name Jews. We're talking about simple Jews over here. At the outbreak of World War II, the Blushev Rebbe was put into a uh, concentration camp called Yanawa. And this was an incident that took place as such. A German officer walked into the camp and he said, you are, all, you are all to evacuate the barracks immediately and report to the vacant lot. Anyone remaining inside will be shot on the spot. Pandemonium broke out in the barracks. People pushed their way to the doors while screaming the names of friends and relatives. In a panic-stricken stampede, the prisoners ran in the direction of the open field. Exhausted, trying to catch their breath, they reached the field. In the middle were two huge pits. 
Suddenly, with their last drop of energy, the inmates realized where they were rushing. Once more, the cold, healthy voice roared through the night. Each of you dogs who values his miserable life and wants to cling to it must jump over the pits and land on the other side. Those who miss will get what they rightfully deserve. It was clear to the inmates that they would all end up in the pits. Even at the best of times, it would have been impossible to jump over them, all the more so on that cold, dark night. The prisoners standing at the edge of the pits were skeletons, feverish from disease and starvation, exhausted from slave labor and sleepless nights. Though the challenge that they had been given to them was a matter of life and death, they knew that for the SS and the Ukrainian guards it was merely another devilish game. Among the thousands of Jews on that field was the Blushev Rebbe. He was standing with a friend, a non-religious Jew, who became a good friend of his. The irreligious Jew told the Blushev Rebbe, let's sit down in the pits and wait for the bullets to end our wretched existence. My friend, said the Rebbe, as they were walking in the direction of the pits, man must obey the will of God. If it is decreed from heaven that pits be dug and we be, and be committed to jump, pits will be dug and we must jump. And if God forbid we fail and fall into the pits, we will reach the world of truth a second later after our attempt. So my friend, we must jump. The rabbi and his friends were nearing the edge of the pits. Pits were filling rapidly with bodies. The rabbi glanced down at his feet, the swollen feet of a Jew ridden with starvation and disease. They reached the pit, the rabbi closed his eyes and commanded in a powerful whisper, we're jumping. Then they jumped and they opened their eyes and they found themselves on the other side of the pit. Spira, that was the Blizzard Rebbe's name. Spira, we're here and we're alive. With warm tears, he repeated it over and over again. Spira, for your sake, I'm alive, and there must be a God in heaven. Tell me, Rebbe, how did you do it? The Rebbe said, I was holding on to my ancestral merit. I was holding on to my avos. I was holding on to the coattails of my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. Tell me, how did you reach the other side of the pit? I was holding on to you. Hold on, gentlemen. And don't let loose. I just want to end with one more story, which I mentioned once before. But uh, now that my Californians are here, I think they'll appreciate it, and so will the others who are part of the weightlifting room. Uh, You know, when you're bench pressing, when you're bench pressing and you want to get the most out of the workout, so you put on a weight which is a little bit too much for you to handle. And you start pushing it up and it's going hard and you're sweating and you can't do it. But there's somebody on top of you called a spotter 
and he has his hands underneath you and he's picking it up little by little by little. And as you are sweating and you're ready to throw it down and he's telling you, keep going, come on, come on, keep pushing, keep pushing. And he helps you with his hand little by little and he's pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing and you're sweating and you can't take it and you're ready to throw it down. He says, no, come on, push. And he has his hand and he's pushing, pushing until finally you reach the top and you made it. Gentlemen, that's what life's all about. HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts things on top of you a little bit. A little bit more than you can handle. Puts a little bit more than you can handle. And you're sweating and you don't know why did God, why did you do this to me for? Why, why, why? I want to get up a minion and I'm tired and I can't do it and it's cold out. And I want to learn and the Gemara is hard and I don't understand the words of what's going on. I want to do it but I can't. I want to throw it away. Shabbos, I can't deal with it anymore. It's too much, too many hours in the day. I've got to have a smoke. I've got to do something. It's too many hours. HaKadosh Baruch is on top of you. He says, push! Keep pushing! I'm there with you. Hold on, just push! A little bit more and you'll break through. Just a little bit more. Keep pushing. And as it says in Avos to Rebbe Nosan, if you'll make that hole... HaKadosh Baruch will open it up as wide as you can see. Mirza Hashem, gentlemen, this should be the best year of your life. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu should only give you all the siyata d'shmaya that you need and that you're looking for and that you'll be able to ask that question, what does God want from me? And you'll make the decisions that will carry you through the rest of your life.